0: I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different, and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on August 22, 2021. Episode 32, Afghanistan, the Biden foreign policy debacle. I contemplated releasing this episode early, given all that happened in just the few days following our seemingly poorly planned troop withdrawal earlier this month, but I decided to let the dust settle some so the episode could include a more thorough picture of what happened and continues to happen in Afghanistan. In waiting, all that is clear is that the United States, or at least those in charge, had no real plan and have left the country and our international relations in shambles. A lot more will need to be learned to understand fully what happened, if we ever do learn, But it's worth considering what we do know. Before we dive into the current situation, an understanding of that country's history, at least generally, is critical to considering its role now in the region and in the world, and in understanding its people. The country now called Afghanistan sits in a location that places it in the center of Asia and as a connector of India and the Middle East. Its location has made it a historical target for all kinds of invasions, and its history is replete with violent conflicts and people have lived in this area for thousands and thousands of years. Alexander the Great invaded in 328 BC, but the Greeks were then pushed out by tribes of Iranians, notably the Persians, about 150 BC. Eventually the Arabs would invade, and what was a society of mostly Buddhist and Hindus was introduced to Islam. The Persians, however, would again come to power in the region, and only be removed by the invasion of the Mongols, ruled by Genghis Khan in 1220 AD. And the Mongols would control this area for about 500 years. In 1747, the Durrani dynasty was created, and the country we now know as Afghanistan began to take its modern form. As nations in other parts of the world began to value trade and other resources offered throughout Asia, the importance of places like Afghanistan to the likes of the Russians and the British resulted in further conflicts in the area throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, including invasion by the Soviets in 1979 that led to Soviet control of the country for a decade The Great Game, as the constant vying for influence in Afghanistan between the British and the Soviets was called, would influence much of the development of modern-day Afghanistan and solidified its importance as the doorway to India, a key British trade route and controlled in large part by the British East India Company. Protection of its interests in India made Great Britain particularly concerned with Russia's attempts to enter Afghanistan first with Russia and then with the newer Soviet Union, the British government and people never trusted Russian motives in the region. In essence, Great Britain viewed Afghanistan as a buffer state between Russia and any attempt that nation may make to invade India. It's actually quite a remarkable observation for how long these two peoples were at odds over Afghanistan's place in the world. That the political and occasionally military hostility continued even after the Russian Revolution and the creation of the Soviet Union is a testament to how deep the rivalry was and how important Afghanistan was viewed in geopolitical terms. As the Cold War continued, events like the Soviet Union's invasion in Afghanistan pitted both the United States and the United Kingdom against the invaders in attempts to avoid Soviet control of the country. What this brief history uncovers is a country with a long, long story of constant domination by outside forces, all while its own people remained comprised of a number of warring factions and it's only after the First World War and the essential defeat of the British in the Third British-Afghan War that concluded in 1921 that Afghanistan actually gained its independence as the country we know today. That independence, however, did not stop other nations from using its unique geographic position and its unstable government to continue to gain power or influence there. In its original modern form, the Afghan government was a traditional monarchy with with a mere Amanullah Khan declaring it such and declaring himself king in 1926. His attempts to usurp power from the country's national council led to armed revolt and the effective overthrow of Amanullah, who abdicated the throne in 1929. By 1933, a new monarch had taken his place, Zahir Shah, and he ruled for four decades. This time period was relatively stable for this country. Other changes in the region, including the British withdrawal from India and the creation of Pakistan, continued to leave Afghanistan at the center of the region's geographic scope. With its proximity to the Soviet Union, it was only a matter of time before Afghanistan looked to this other superpower for economic and military support. And by the 1950s, the Soviets and Afghans were close allies. And those ties created a rise in communist activity in Afghanistan. By 1965, in secret, the Communist Party was formed in that country, and with the final overthrow of monarchy control in 1973, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan came to power. But by 1978, a communist coup seizes power, all while at the same time opponents to communism and Islamic leaders begin to engage in armed conflict throughout the nation. The Mujahideen is created to oppose this communist government. The ties of the Afghan government to the Communist Soviet Union and the 1979 murder of the United States ambassador, Adolf Dubs, leads to a cutting of ties between the United States, which had, in hopes of staving off the communist march and Soviet power, included financial assistance, and Afghanistan were severed. In other words, the United States cut its ties. With the United States withdrawing from participation, the Soviets see the opportunity to invade and do invade Afghanistan to support the communist regime in its battle with the Mujahideen. In an interesting look back, the civil war occurring in Afghanistan resulted in millions of Afghans escaping to neighboring countries and created an unlikely ally for the United States. As Osama bin Laden, with his Islamic positions, found himself aligned with the anti-communists, the Mujahideen, the same Mujahideen garnering support from the United States and Britain. And by the late 1980s, bin Laden and others formed al-Qaeda. At this time in history to fight its religious jihad against the Soviets, and by the 1990s, the rebel groups had gained control, and the Taliban, just one of those rebel groups, aligned with the Mujahideen. They rose to power and approval as they promised peace. By this point, it should be clear that the historical and current situation in Afghanistan are not simple, and the issues get even more directly relevant to the United States, as the Taliban, al-Qaeda, and others, having defeated the communists in their region, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, turned their sights on other enemies. The enemy of that enemy is my friend, but only until our joint enemy has been defeated. For the Afghan rebel groups that defeated communism, with the help from places like the United States, once done, they turned their sights on the remaining superpower, America, as the enemy it next sought to defeat. For a number of years, Afghanistan served as base camp for Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And it is from within this nation, those committed to a jihad against the West and the United States trained, planned, and financed what would be a pattern of attacks on our country and her allies, including an earlier bombing at the World Trade Center, bombing of United States embassies, and attacks on the USS Cole. After bombing U.S. embassies in Africa in 1998, the United States launched its first military strike against al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. These initial cruise missile attacks were viewed generally as not successful, The human rights abuses being committed in Afghanistan, primarily the attack against any non-Muslims, were growing, and the hatred to be cultivated by those recruited into the Jihad against the West continued to grow, with things like the cruise missile attacks as a basis for turning that ire onto our country. Though those involved with the likes of al-Qaeda were not limited to any one nation, what would become the most horrific attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor would have ties to Afghanistan that were deeper and harder to eradicate than could be imagined. The use of Bin Laden and his supporters in the Afghan countryside and mountains, and the damage done by their hiding within Afghan borders to the majority of the Afghan people cannot be underestimated, but nor could the complicit nature of the government of Afghanistan in knowingly and willingly harboring terrorists. Following the horrific events of September 11, 2001, the United States had only one option, to do all that was necessary to identify and to stop those who perpetrated those attacks to prevent further attacks on our people. Realizing the national security at stake, on September 18, 2001, Congress adopted the following authorization for the use of military force, providing the following authority to President George W. Bush and those who would succeed him. It read as follows, The President is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, Or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. This authorization would result in a decades long intervention by U.S. military forces into the country of Afghanistan. The difficulty in seeking to militarily confront the terrorists who attacked America, and to do so in Afghanistan, is that it required the entry of the United States into a nation that had been at civil war for years already, and had rarely in modern times experienced any real stability. It would also require entering a country nearly exclusively under Taliban control, recalling that the Taliban was one of many organizations supportive of the likes of the very man who orchestrated the 9-11 attacks. Just 15 days after the terrorist attacks within our borders, members of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center and Special Activities Division entered the Panjshir Valley just north of Kabul, Afghanistan. The goal of this covert mission was literally to purchase support of the Northern Alliance for future entry of American forces into the area. Just a few days later, British intelligence forces arrived, seeking to garner further support among the Afghan forces, including both the Northern Alliance and and members of the Taliban by attempting to bribe Taliban fighters to cease actions against the West, efforts, or even to turn them against the Taliban to join the Northern Alliance. By October, the United States military officially launched operations in Afghanistan with the start of airstrikes. Key targets were locations believed to be terrorist training sites or to house those involved with or equipment used for command and control of Taliban and al-Qaeda operations. These would be just the small start to an ongoing campaign where our in-country allies were less than reliable at times and where the enemy failed to abide by any normal rules of engagement. Despite repeated requests, the Taliban refused to extradite bin Laden or to take any action against terrorist training camps in their country. So by October 2001, Operation Enduring Freedom launched, including joint efforts by American and British military forces, who were soon joined by forces from other nations and from the Afghan Northern Alliance the only real in-country counter to the Taliban. What followed were years of conflict in the country that now included U.S. military troops. Initial action within Afghanistan was successful, at least at at disrupting terrorist training camps and pushing the Taliban out of power. But most key leaders with al-Qaeda and the Taliban went uncaptured, often fleeing to neighboring countries. The terrain of Afghanistan provided ample places to hide, and neighboring countries like Pakistan were not likely to be of great assistance to the United States and its allies. By the end of 2001, just a few months after the attacks of September 11th, the United Nations International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, formed as the entity to oversee military action. A couple of years later, NATO would step in to take over much of these efforts, such that some operations were overseen by NATO and some were under strictly U.S. command. Work was begun installing a new la- leader in Afghanistan and attempting to set up a new and more free and democratic governmental structure— But the Taliban would not sit back and allow the West to take from it the country over which it had gained authority. Taliban rebels began to push back nearly immediately, despite the fact that in 2004, popular elections were held in which Hamid Karzai, who had been the leader during the transition government, was elected president. Hostilities with the Taliban continued, and the Taliban sat, prior to U.S. troop withdrawal, poised to regain control of Afghanistan once again as soon as the opportunity presented itself. though there were clear objectives when the United States entered Afghanistan, related to identifying and disrupting the terrorists who had just attacked us. As the years unfolded, the purpose seemed to evolve, and the decisions made from the top plagued with misjudgments, false pronouncements of victory, unclear policy goals, and a seeming refusal to consider long-term consequences, both of the time spent there and any eventual withdrawal. We entered Afghanistan to disrupt and dismantle al-Qaeda. We did not enter to build a nation, That said, there is a good argument for a small continuing presence to avoid just what we are seeing now, a near-immediate return to rule by terrorists and an instant increase in the risk of terrorist activity within the borders of Afghanistan. The review of the brief history of Afghanistan should have indicated that attempts to try to restructure its government into something resembling ours was not likely to succeed, or at least not simply by the providing of assistance by America and her allies. Even if supported by a majority of the Afghan people, the history of civil war and unrest does not lend itself easily to the imposition of democratically elected leaders, when opposition leaders remain willing and able to oppose such leaders with military force. The other problem with Afghanistan is that the United States, fearing anything looking too much like the failure in Vietnam, constantly set short timelines for its military forces to reach goals and kept changing the goals themselves. And when goals were not met, the solution was all too often to insert more money into the country in an attempt to buy our way out of any perceived failure. Much of this money went into the Afghan military, a military full of very fine people, but also full of corruption and poor training, no matter how much American and allied forces tried to turn it around. This is not a failure of our soldiers, but of those at the top making decisions for political reasons. In truth, the war in Afghanistan was probably always unwinnable in the traditional sense, but it was not a traditional war. Our primary goal was American security from terrorists and it is here that troop presence was holding the line and was clearly effective. When the scope of our efforts turned more to country building, it opened up the effort to more bad decisions. Afghanistan was and still is a failed state. It had no stable government with which to coordinate our efforts and it had no secure structure to which to seek to return it. Our attempts to try to create a government would always be viewed with skepticism by some of the Afghan people. And the enemies were multiple, and the identification of who was friend or foe nearly impossible in some settings. This entire region is not one that is easy to enter. It has a long and storied history, and it invites infighting among its various factions. And those seeking to undermine efforts to create a democratic government were aided by other countries in the region. Though successes can be found in how well our own forces operated and trained many of the Afghan service members, and in the actual service of those Afghan service members themselves. Full training takes time, particularly the training needed to maintain, repair, and operate the military equipment we were providing. And the Afghan government could still be revived with some sense of order, but it would require hard work on the part of the Afghan people and the continued support and oversight by the United States and our allies. Just how willing the United States was to continue in any role there was unclear, but with the recent withdrawal of troops and seeming total abandonment of anyone left behind, it can only be assumed that the United States is sadly and shamefully all we called all we called among the Afghan people these true years, allies, not an ally at all. Again, it is not the military troops who failed. It is their leaders, particularly the political leaders, who continued to put them in harm's way with no real plan or strategy to succeed or even to define what might constitute success. And who simply decided it would be okay just to claim defeat and walk away? Now that President Biden has almost instantaneously withdrawn troops, seemingly with no departure plan, things look to get even worse for both the United States and for the Afghan people. The United States lost several thousand servicemen and women in Afghanistan, with tens of thousands more injured and even more emotionally scarred by the time spent in this country and the time lost at home. The cost in terms of lives lost or ruined is is immeasurable. What is measurable is the financial cost which is estimated at about a trillion dollars. To be fair, there were successes. Osama bin Laden was taken out, though found in Pakistan and not Afghanistan, and nearly 20 years has passed without another terrorist attack within our borders. It cannot be denied that the fact that U.S. troops remained in the country for these years prevented a reconstitution of al-Qaeda and its terrorist network there. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction uncovered a collection of government officials who long ago viewed the war as unwinnable, but without a way to exit the country without risks of instability in the region and the creation of security risks to U.S. concerns. It may be that a peaceful Afghanistan is simply not a reachable goal at this time, at least not at the hands of a Western nation and with continued meddling by the likes of Pakistan. But with no combat losses in the past 12 to 18 months, some kind of peacekeeping force clearly served U.S. interests related to protection against a re-emerging terrorist organization. The first several years after the introduction of U.S. forces into Afghanistan, may have given us a sense of success. Indeed, this time period was relatively peaceful and involved much lower troop levels than would later be used. The goal was clear, to defeat or disable al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but the path to the goal was not clear. Efforts to target these groups' leaders may have had some effect, but it was insufficient to convert those dedicated to fighting against us to our side of this war. The Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf, at the request of President Bush, did cut off financial support to the Taliban Pakistan had its own foreign policy interests to balance with any fear of offending the United States. Always having concerns that India could exert more influence in Afghanistan, as Afghanistan sits between Pakistan and India, Pakistan's interest was in ensuring forces were present in Afghanistan that would push back against any entry by India into that nation. And though cutting off direct support to the Taliban soon after September 11th, at least for some period of time, as support did again begin to flow from Pakistan to Taliban just a few years later, Pakistan's actions opened the door for our adversaries to enter that nation and rebuild themselves there as a kind of safe haven. Yet the United States' official position continued to be one in which Pakistan was still a needed partner in our efforts. By 2006, Taliban leader Mullah Omar, having reached out through recordings to Taliban fighters to ask them to be prepared for a return to the fight, was able to launch an attack that would involve thousands of Taliban fighters surrounding and taking over key areas in the south and east parts of Afghanistan This return of the Taliban in force essentially created two rival governments. It also required increases in U.S. troop levels, where initial troop levels started at about 8,000 and grew to about 20,000 within a few years after the start of the conflict. Following the resurgence of the Taliban, President Obama made the decision to increase troop levels yet again, and the troop surge would result in nearly 100,000 U.S. soldiers being present in Afghanistan. This troop surge, it was hoped, would allow for the continued fight against al-Qaeda and the continued strengthening of Afghan forces to be able to resist the Taliban and to avoid leaving a country that may again open its doors to the likes of al-Qaeda for use of its lands to continue terrorist training. The 2009 troop surge came with an expectation that withdrawal should be able to occur just two years later in 2011. But the war was now becoming more costly in terms of American lives and money, and President Obama began announcing a timeline for withdrawal, now expecting full withdrawal by the end of 2016. But in 2015, the Taliban again demonstrated its refusal to give up, and through multiple well-planned operations, defeated the Afghan soldiers, though those forces far outnumbered the Taliban fighters, taking back almost all the areas reclaimed by U.S. troops after the surge. This Taliban offensive proved the ineffectiveness of the Afghan troops as a group at this point. Though full of many fine military members, too many in the rank and file were untrained and undisciplined. And for whatever reason, and despite training and equipment far superior to the Taliban, Afghan military forces often surrendered rather than fight the Taliban. For those who remembered what Taliban rule was like, that should come as no surprise. They were li- they were right to be afraid. The reason these Afghan military members often failed also... To follow their training is likely due to a number of factors, but one that cannot be overlooked is the widespread corruption and mistreatment of the average Afghan citizen by its leaders. When corruption leads to the kind of mistreatment suffered by so many average Afghans, it should be no foreign policy or diplomatic surprise that these very citizens are not quick to trust a newly established government or any government and can more easily be convinced to participate in uprisings set on destruction of those engaged in corruption. In addition, those many, many Afghans who did stand side-by-side with their own forces to better their situation and fight for freedom still needed some skeletal support, and when we abruptly withdrew that support, a collapse was nearly certain. Pair the widespread corruption with a centuries-long disdain for occupation of the nation by outsiders, and you set up a difficult stage on which U.S. forces are being asked not only to provide security and training, but to try to persuade the thinking of the Afghan people. For this reason, too, even those wishing for peace were not necessarily of the mindset that the Taliban were a force worth dying to fight. Some lacked passion to fight the Taliban as an enemy. Instead, the untenable position for these Afghans was in attempting to support support invaders against their own people. Others, given Afghanistan's young population, have never lived under or are too young to recall what the regime was really, really like when the Taliban was last in power, and that puts them at a disadvantage at trying to determine where their allegiances should lie. In hindsight, there were a lot of mistakes along the way, as there always are, that may have changed the outcome in Afghanistan. But even if things had gone differently, had different decisions been made, the chances of long-term success here on the nation-building front, as shown by history, were likely always low unless a U.S. or NATO presence remained. With that being the case, the removal of U.S. troops seemed to, to some an obvious decision. If we can't succeed, why stay? But because of the years of involvement there and the continuing instability, and the terrorists undoubtedly waiting in the wings or mountains around the world just looking for another opportunity to strike a blow against the West, we cannot simply toss up our hands and walk or fly out. There must now be a strategy to minimize the damage and to continue to monitor and to thwart any attempts at the resurrection of the likes of al-Qaeda. Unfortunately, it appears there is none. In April of this year, claiming success in Afghanistan, President Biden announced his plan fully to to withdraw U.S. troops by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on our country. That seems like an odd date, but we won't debate that here. He claimed this withdrawal would be safe, deliberate, and responsible. Then in July, President Biden announced the withdrawal would be complete earlier than the original date, with all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by August 31st. The first misstep here was in announcing any withdrawal date withdrawal of troops from military engagement should occur only when certain conditions have been put in place to do so safely, and announcing a date further emboldens those who will celebrate the leaving of U.S. troops and who may now plan their own strategy for what happens when the country's security is no longer being supported by America. And of all people, President Biden, who was vice president during the also-failed withdrawal of troops from Iraq that led to the rise of ISIS, should understand the need for a proper and well-constructed exit strategy. The decision to remove troops is not necessarily the error here, though the likelihood that we could, anytime soon, remove all troops, as President Biden has done, without serious negative repercussions, should have been obvious to anyone as not the best choice. Both Presidents Obama and Trump desired to find a way to begin our safe exit from Afghanistan. The right way to do so was the challenge. Our leaders owed it to us and to the Afghan people to leave only at a time and in a way that would protect some stability and security for both countries. Criticism could be levied at these prior administrations for not finding the right strategy for us to leave, or it could be a realization that leaving, or at least a complete withdrawal of any American presence, was not as simple once all the facts were known to the president making the decision. Though President Trump had become a, begun a process that may have worked involving negotiations with Taliban leaders without relying on their honesty in reaching such agreements and setting out conditions for U.S. withdrawal and what the U.S. would do if those conditions were not met, Agreements with the organizations like the Taliban have to come with dire consequences should they fail to abide by them. As Cash Patel, the member of the Trump administration whose responsibility it was to wind down the war in Afghanistan has written recently in the New York Post, contrary to claims by the Biden administration that this debacle is the fault of former president Trump's own exit strategy, the Trump administration plan was not followed. We will never know how things would have turned out had president Biden followed that plan put in place by the prior administration, but I feel pretty certain It couldn't have turned out any worse than what has happened. Despite his promise that the withdrawal would be safe, deliberate, and responsible, it seems it has been anything but. This withdrawal is an unmitigated disaster, and already President Biden has been forced to order thousands of troops back in, more than were stationed there at the time of the withdrawal, to help evacuate the U.S. Embassy and secure the airport. A withdrawal that did not first plan for the safe evacuation of these American citizens creates echoes of the same kind of abandonment that occurred in Benghazi under the Obama administration, but at a much, much more serious level. Even Obama-era officials, including Ryan Cro- Crocker, who served as U.S. Amb- ambassador to Afghanistan, views the errors made related to the troop withdrawal as further proof that President Biden is not competent to lead the United States. In an interview as the country began to fall, he had this to say. I'm left with some grave questions in my mind about his ability to lead our nation as commander-in-chief. To have read this so wrong, or even worse, to have understood what was likely to happen and not care. We have seen this movie before. This would be the Taliban of the 1990s that gave safe haven to al-Qaeda, except they're meaner and tougher than they were then because of what they've been through. And why is the almost instant withdrawal of troops now nearly immediately followed by reintroduction of more troops? Well, because as many suspected, but President Biden denied, as soon as we left, the Taliban marched in, and it did so with such speed and precision that one can only assume that while our leaders failed to plan for the withdrawal, the Taliban did not. They knew exactly what they would do when Americans left. And for those still characterizing the events in our own country on January 6th as some kind of attempted coup, it may be worth pointing out that what occurred in Afghanistan is what an actual military coup looks like. Though the immediate concern is safe evacuation of the Americans who remain there, the departure of the United States from Afghanistan comes with many other serious risks. The Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, has fled the country, and the Taliban was, as of the writing of this podcast, in the presidential palace. And there are external concerns about the overall effect this sudden change in Afghanistan will have outside its borders and for United States security around the world. China At this point in human history, it can be presumed that with every perceived American failure, China will be waiting to take advantage of it. In this case, it has been reported that Chinese officials met with the Taliban leaders in July. China views Afghanistan as a U.S. failure, and it may be correct. What is more troubling is that China is poised to begin to exert its own influence in that nation, and in doing so, it will have no concerns about whether its involvement creates security risks for the United States. That is not to say that China doesn't also have its own concerns about the instability that the abrupt withdrawal of U.S. forces is creating, making it clear they still view the United States as responsible for ensuring security in the face of this withdrawal. Though China has its own concerns, given its small border with Afghanistan and its own desire to keep Islamic extremists out of China, it also sees some opportunity with the removal of U.S. and NATO troops. It is one of the strategies of Beijing to provide funds for infrastructure in other nations as a means of gaining control over local resources in order to bolster its own Chinese Communist Party. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made his view of the U.S. operation in Afghanistan quite clear, explaining, as friendly neighbors that share the flow of mountain ranges and rivers, China is determined to support the peaceful transition in Afghanistan. Yi also sought to characterize the United States as not a true defender of the Afghan people. We cannot underestimate any involvement or relations between the Taliban and China, nor can we minimize the effect of the overall anti-Western, specifically anti-U.S. sentiment China will be more than happy to engender in the region, the same kind of anti-American sentiment that led to the attacks of September 11th. Indeed, former advisor to British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who in her time heading her country had to face issues in Afghanistan, posted to Twitter, Clueless, isolated, and sinking fast. President Biden has become an embarrassment on the world stage and his non-leadership a gift to the enemies of the free world from Kabul to Beijing. America has never been weaker at the helm in this modern era. Statements being made by leadership in our ally countries, including statements in Parliament in the UK, demonstrate that not only do our allies not trust our current commander-in-chief, they also do not trust us any longer to lead the West around the world. The UK's Parliament has held President Biden in contempt for his failures with the troop withdrawal, and conservative member of parliament Tom Tugendhat gave an impassioned speech given his own military service in Afghanistan, essentially explaining that he was offended by President Biden's statements that appeared to criticize the military members involved in this effort, Afghan and otherwise, concluding his statements by emphasizing the following, those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. And it was also the British parliament that recognized that Quote, Biden may have condemned the world to Chinese domination in the future, as a result of this failure in Af- Afghanistan. It should have been obvious to the Biden administration, as it is obvious to most observers, that China, along with the Taliban, would have reason to celebrate this American humiliation. And China is already grabbing onto the weakness shown by this recent failure, making statements to the people of Taiwan that they should not expect the United States to defend them. And after this statement, China began military exercises along the border with Taiwan that should raise eyebrows of anyone watching these events unfold. And what ally would rely on us now? It's not just other nations who may view our shown weakness, not in military strength, but in the ability to use it effectively through our leaders' decisions, and seek to use it to their advantage. There are other concerns related to the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Though purporting, or at least giving lip service to being against the poppy and opium trade in the country, the Taliban has actually controlled many of the poppy fields and is funded in large part by the drug trade that results from this cash crop. Opium poppy is the country's biggest crop, and from it, Afghanistan produces at least 85% of the world's heroin. There is a chance that as the Taliban seeks more financial resources, the world could see an increase in the trade of heroin and other related drugs as a result of U.S. troop withdrawal. Though the Taliban has controlled and profited from poppy opium, it has been cut off from many of the major trade routes throughout Afghanistan by the presence of the U.S. military there. The absence of U.S. troops and the seizure of these major roadways that has already occurred by the Taliban opens doors for an even larger drug trade. But it is not just the traditional heroin trade that may fuel the Taliban's finances. Evidence suggests that the Taliban has increased production and cultivation of ephedra, another wildly growing plant in the country, and also the starting ingredient for the production of methamphetamines. A report from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime identified that there had been a 37% increase in the lands being used to grow poppies, and it provided this explanation. Afghan authorities have attributed this, at least in part, to the gradual expansion of Taliban-controlled territory in the country, particularly in key border provinces where transshipments occur. Now that the Taliban controls nearly all of the country, its need for funding will only increase, and increased production of drugs is a likely avenue for that funding. And then there were the expected refugees. Thousands and thousands of Afghan people are attempting to leave cities like Kabul. The Wall Street Journal reported, quote, At the U.S. Embassy on Sunday afternoon, helicopters ferried American and Western diplomats and civilians to the military side of Kabul airport. One after another, Chinooks and Blackhawks took off from the landing zone, spraying dust, Below them was a city of traffic jams and roundabouts choked by cars, many of them filled with Afghans trying to reach the airport's relative safety. Dark smoke, presumably from burning documents, rose from the presidential palace, end quote. But the most obvious fallout from our withdrawal from Afghanistan without first ensuring the country was set up to maintain stability and safeguard it from chaos is the vacuum that lack of security opens for the resurgence of terrorist activities. Where the Trump administration sought to involve the Taliban— but hold them accountable by military reprisal if necessary for their wrongdoings, in a planned exit, and attempt to give them incentives. Not, in an attempt to give them incentives not to support continuing terrorist activities, the withdrawal here was without any strategy to try to prevent the regrowth of terrorism within the borders of Afghanistan, and it opens us back up to vulnerability for further terrorist activity without our borders, for possible attacks within them. Indeed, on Sunday, August fifteenth, our military commanders were forced to acknowledge just how quickly this utter disaster of a withdrawal could open the door to increased terrorist activity and threats to America. In a reported phone call among Senate leaders, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, Milley admitted that in the light of the rapid decline of conditions in Afghanistan following the rapid withdrawal of troops, the terrorist threat risk would likely have to be upgraded from medium to something much higher. It might be worth pointing out that maybe Millie and Austin should have spent much less time trying to create a woke, diverse military and much more time planning the strategy for the exit from Afghanistan. And the Taliban is already making it clear they do not seek to take over the country and act with decency. Reports of door-to-door raids to uncover all those who supported the American, Americans and the new Afghan government, along with Afghan military and police members, are demonstrating an intent to take horrible actions against them reported beatings of those attempting to escape and get to the airport, and the number we can expect to be killed at the hands of the Taliban is frightening. And they are losing their lives for one thing, for supporting the United States. Where are we now in supporting them? And worse yet, the U.S. departure from Afghanistan was done, leaving behind unfathomable stockpiles of military arms and equipment that we provided to the now-defeated Afghan military. If pictures are any evidence, it can only be assumed that most of those weapons are now in the hands of the Taliban. And we cannot overlook the humiliation that is already being thrust upon the United States from both our enemies and our allies. Much like the fall of Saigon to the North Vietnamese in 1975, the amazing speed with which the Taliban has re-entered the likes of Kabul and taken possession of the U.S. Embassy is an international humiliation that only serves to undercut America's role in the world. Without admitting it openly, even President Biden's administration has some understanding of the embarrassment this failed withdrawal is, and will cause to America, as it instructed embassy staff to destroy American flags and sensitive documents to avoid their falling into the hands of the Taliban, who could use them to further embarrass the country with propaganda. But yet, President Biden continues to tell reporters that there's no way this withdrawal would end up or has ended up like another debacle, such as the fall of Saigon. But here we are and the parallels are indisputable. As each day unfolds, the situation seemingly gets worse with the Taliban takeover. They've taken over Bagram Air Base, and they've released high-value prisoners, including previously captured Al-Qaeda members. And with the evacuation of Americans still underway, many were being told to shelter in place as the airport took on hostile fire. And no matter how many times some Democrats and members of the Biden administration protest any comparison with Saigon, it appears they doth protest too much. Just as the country had to work to rebound to a position of strength following Vietnam, the repercussions felt from this disastrous failed exit strategy, which involved no strategy at all, will surely haunt the nation for years, if not decades, to come. President Biden and those in his administration handling this troop withdrawal did so with a clear lack of understanding of the risks involved or a clear lack of caring. Indeed, in a July press appearance, President Biden had this to say when he answered no to a reporter's question whether it was inevitable that upon the withdrawal of troops, the Taliban would take over. Here are the words of our president. Because you have the Afghan troops, 300,000, well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban, it is not inevitable. Well, if it wasn't inevitable that the Taliban would take over, then the blame that they have lies plainly at the feet of the Biden administration. But President Biden also took issue with any comparison to the situation in Afghanistan to that in Saigon. Sadly, just the next month, after the president's claims, we are indeed facing another humiliating defeat related to the troop exit that could have been avoided by proper planning. And we have a president who's basically been missing in action most of the time during the fall of Kabul, hiding out at Camp David, then returning, then maybe going to Delaware, then maybe staying in D.C., while reports began to circulate that his administration was told by the military that it would, in fact, Take no time for the Taliban to take everything. A warning to which no one in charge, if anyone is in charge, listened. As always, thank you for listening. The United States may have accomplished important things in Afghanistan. Indeed, I'm sure that the soldiers did. And there can be no doubt that the various terrorist groups operating within that country's borders prior to U.S. involvement were dismantled to a large degree by the presence and activities of our brave military members and our allies. Any accomplishments achieved by those on the ground have been overshadowed by the chaotic way in which the Biden administration withdrew our troops. Sadly, the risks of a prolonged military conflict always threaten the freedoms of democracy, a concept understood by Alexis de Tocqueville when he said, No protracted war can fail to endanger the freedom of a democratic country. People tire of war, the Afghans likely tired of military presence, and the costs of war, and a war with no clear end but what they don't want, whether in Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan, is an end to such a war that comes at the expense of American lives and that risks toppling America's standing in the world. Ending war is difficult, but it can be done without the incompetent disorder that occurred on President Biden's watch in Afghanistan. Next week, I will revisit the legal and policy issues surrounding COVID-19. With the Delta variant and certainly future variants to come, the availability of vaccines, the start of a new school year for our children, and more data collected over the course of the pandemic, it's time to take another look at the real risks posed by the virus, how those risks compare to the types of risks each of us takes every day without fear or thought, and where government may be overstepping its authority and role in attempting to control behavior that is not likely to change the real course of a virus. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our constitution, and God bless America, particularly America's servicemen and women. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solis Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Scepter. Copyright 2021.